disciples. He's writing to Jewish Christians and he's writing to people who were under persecution and the threat of persecution in Rome. And so it's interesting to look at these commands, remembering that we're looking at them through the lens uh, of, of a group of people that are, that are suffering, that a group of people that are being persecuted. Uh, their lives were literally in danger, uh, which means you didn't become a casual member of the church. When he's writing to these people like you were either in or out, you didn't go and, and flirt around with, with being a disciple because there was real risk involved. Uh, unlike, you know, in our country where we can kind of be casual about this thing. For them, there was great risk. Um, go ahead, Mike, and read Acts 1.8. This is going to kind of frame up what we're going to talk about today. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus talking. This is Jesus at the beginning of Acts, and he's predicting what's going to happen with the disciples, with the church moving forward. He says, you, my people, my disciples, you are going to be my witnesses all over the earth. And if you don't know what that means, a witness is called to testify. A witness is somebody that gives testimony based on their experience uh, to make a case for something. And in this case, people are going to make the case as witnesses that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus is the promised Messiah, the king of the universe, who's going to make everything right and who we better listen to. And that's exactly what we see unfolding in the lives of the church. And in Peter, we talked that first week about how disciples are going to have an unmistakable confidence in the future. Because we believe that Jesus is the king and that he's going to make everything right. The worst thing the world can do is kill us. And if they kill us, we get to go be with him. Amen? We're going to be okay, so we've got confidence. We also talked about how the disciples are going to have an unmistakable holiness about them. To be holy just means you're set apart for service to God. And so when you decide to become one of God's people, you're saying my life is going to be about service to Jesus Christ the King. If Jesus says to jump, I'm going to say how high. Amen? We do what Jesus says. We're holy. We live a certain way, we talk a certain way, we think a certain way. Then we talked about submission. How there's going to be a sense of submission and an acknowledgement of God's authority in my life. We submit to God first. We submit to Him in all things. He's the only God. He's the only one. Now there are other authorities on earth that He calls us to submit to. We submit to the government, we submit to our spouse, we submit to one another, but only so long as we submit to God first. For instance, if my spouse says, hey, I want you to quit going to church, do I submit to that? Well, no, because that would be a violation of my submission to God. I submit to God first. If the government says, I want you to quit telling people what's in the Bible, I want you to quit teaching that, I don't like that, we don't listen to the government in that case, right? But in the rest of the way, as long as we're not violating our submission to God, we submit. Amen? This week, we're going to talk about how there's an unmistakable witness. 
The church is made up uh, and, and, and carries out this unmistakable witness in the world. This is one of the purposes of the church. When Jesus says, I'm going to send you out into the world to tell the world about me, to show the world what I'm like, that's what the purpose of the church is. You are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Therefore, the church is in the world to seek and to save the lost. A lot of you in this room are first-generation Christians. You want to know why you're here? Because somebody believed it was God's purpose for them to reach you. We see baptisms here at the crossings all the time. We see new believers coming in all the time. Why? Because we're a church that believes our purpose is to reach a lost and hurting world. Why do we believe that? Because that's what Jesus was like. And we want to be Christ-like. We want to be witnesses that are faithful because we want to be Christ-like. And it's important to remember, guys, when you become a disciple of Jesus, it is no longer about you. It ceases to be about you. You cease to be your own God when you become a disciple of Jesus. It's about him. It's about serving him. And one of the things Jesus models is it's about others. Jesus was all about others. Do you ever see Jesus in the Gospels? Do you ever see him complaining about serving people? Do you ever see him complaining whenever he's exhausted? Do you ever see him complain? He's, he's all about people, man. He's all about people. You've got some notes in your bulletin. If you want to pull those out, it's going to have most of the passages of Scripture we're going to look at on there. It's also going to have some places for you to take notes. Uh, we tend to remember stuff better when we write it down. Uh, we also use these notes in our small groups whenever we get together. We, we pull these out, we look back over them with everybody, and we say, how do we apply this stuff to our life? And so that's really, um, we'll talk more about that in a second. Uh, but the first point on there, I reveal what Jesus is like to the world when, number one, I witness with my Christ-like attitude. I witness with my Christ-like attitude. Guys, do you remember a time when Jesus was subject to moodiness? You seem to remember that at all. Do you remember a time when Jesus was grumpy and complaining? Do you seem to remember that at all? One of the things that's amazing to me is that Jesus maintained a good attitude. He never sinned in his attitude. He was not moody. He was not grumpy. He was not complaining. He was relational, and he was easy to be friends with. That's what Jesus was like. Why? Because he had a good attitude. He had a, he had a godly attitude. He had an attitude uh, that didn't turn people off or run people away. He was relational, and he was friendly. Now, specifically in 1 Peter... Uh, this, what we're going to read is talking about my attitude towards my church family. My attitude toward my church family. It says in 1 Peter 3.8, finally, all of you, and he's writing to the church, okay? He's writing to disciples. He says, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Right? This is what he says. And this is couched in a bunch of other times in the letter where he's already said things like this. There's an expectation uh, when you are a disciple, first of all, you're part of a church. There's no such thing in the Bible as a Christian separate from a church. That is not a thing, okay? In the Bible, they don't even argue for participation in the church. They just assume you already are participating in the church if you're a disciple. This is another example of that. It's assumed. It's not even argued for, right? 
just part of it. If you're a disciple of Christ, if you're right with God, you're going to be part of a church because that's what disciples do. That's what Christians do. Uh, and you can't carry out these commands outside of that community. He says to be like-minded. What does that mean? Like-minded means you are uh, united in values with the people around you. It means where there is disagreement, you try to work things out. Now, the opposite of this is, is uh, divisive. The opposite of this is I get mad and I don't work it out. I just allow the disagreement to sit and I don't work it out. He says to be sympathetic. That means that you're understanding. That means that you're graceful. That means when somebody messes up or sins against you, you recognize that you're a sinner too and you need grace. And so you don't hold grudges. You don't get angry and, and for, refuse to work it out. You work it out. You're, you're, you're kind. You're compassionate toward people. Um, he says uh, to love one another. Now, this is a repeat of Jesus' command to love one another. We'll look at that more in just a second. And then he says to be compassionate, humble. That just means you're tenderhearted. You have tender feelings for the people around you. The opposite of that is you're hard-hearted and you don't care. Pretty much what Peter is saying here is I want you guys to be unified. I want you to be together. If, if there's conflict, I want you to work it out. I don't want you grumbling and complaining and being a baby. I want you to go and act like grown people and I want you to work through your stuff and not hold grudges or be angry with one another, but get out there and be together. That's what he's saying, and it's repeated over and over. Be humble. See yourself as God sees you. Don't value your opinion so highly that you can't go and, and be with somebody else. Be connected. Be humble. Now, why does he say this? This is one of those one another commands that's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of these in the New Testament. They are specific. When I say one another commands, there are specific commands in the Bible that are carried out in the context of a church. Very specific commands in the Bible that are carried out in the context of the church. You can't carry out these one another commands if you're not part of the church. And that's part of why I say it's just assumed in the Bible that you are. It's not even argued for, it's just assumed. You can't carry these out outside of the church. Why is this so important? Well, Jesus, before his crucifixion in John 13, was talking with his friends. And he says, my children, I will only be with you a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you where I'm going, you cannot come. He's talking about, I'm, I'm about to go to heaven. I'm about to be crucified. Now, they didn't know this. Jesus did. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to go, right? <laughs> this is interesting. In 34, Jesus says, a new command I give you. Not an old command, a new command. Love one another. Now, why is this a new command? Well, in the narrative of Scripture, Jesus had already given the, the greatest command, which is love God with everything, right? Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the number one, numero uno, most important command in the entire Bible. It's to put God first. It's to love God first. It's to give God your loyalty first, right? And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus says that the whole Bible is summed up in those two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Some smart aleck came along one time and said, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus told him a story about how, well, maybe even people that don't share your religion are your neighbor. You need to be kind to them, right? Uh, so there's this idea in the Bible, we love God and we love people. But then Jesus comes along in John 13 and he says, I'm going to give you a new command. He says, 
love one another. Now that's a new command because he is telling the disciples to love the disciples. He is, for you, telling you to love the people in your church. Christians love Christians. Disciples love disciples. A new command. Okay, I've already told you love God and love your neighbor. Now I'm going to give you a new one. I want you to love each other. That's kind of weird. But then he goes on to explain, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Guys, how many of you came into a relationship with God because you had a relationship with another person? Raise your hand. Okay. Did you notice that's everyone in the room? Did you notice that? (coughs) God works through people, and God works through relationships. Now, I can ask, especially you guys in the campus ministry, how many of you guys came into that relationship with that ministry because of the relationships you saw in that ministry? I can tell you that was one of the main things that was attractive to me about the church. When I, was, I came to Christ when I was 23 as a result of a campus ministry. Part of why I was attracted to that group is because they acted different than me and my friends acted. You know, me and my friends that I used to run around and get high with and, you know, go get drunk with and chase girls with, we treated each other okay. We were kind. But, man, it was like we didn't love each other like these people in this church did. And it was just this one church, guys. I had been to churches. Man, I went in when I was lost. I went into churches looking for help. I was addicted to drugs. I was strung out. Like I had long hair and smelled like cigarette smoke. And I'm going up in these places with all these church people. Here I am feeling like a fish out of water, right? Nobody will talk to me. Like I go to young, a young adult ministry at this church up the street and literally go and ask, can we hang out? And they're like, no, we're busy. Because I went into churches looking for something. I couldn't find it. Do you guys know how rare it is to have a church that actually loves one another? Do you know how rare that is? And do you know how attractive that is to a hurting world? Did you know the United States is one of the loneliest countries on earth? Pew Research, man. They've done research on our country. There are more people that are lonely today in the United States than just about anywhere else. There are people looking for community, looking for help, looking for love. That's what the church is here to give them, man. It's here to give them. But if you're not loving each other the way God says to love each other, people are going to come and they're going to see you with your friends and they're going to think you're just like everybody else. You're just like, there's nothing different. But man, when you're really a disciple of Jesus and you're living out these commands... There is something different in your community that the world can see that they're attracted to because love is attractive. But we got to love well in order for that to be there. That's why Jesus says, man, everybody's going to know you're really my disciples by how you love one another. The number one litmus test for spiritual maturity is how you treat other people. You may not have ever thought about it that way, But, man, that's how you can tell whether somebody is really a disciple or not. It's by how they treat their fellow human being, especially those in the church. If you claim to be a disciple, 
but you are not close to anybody in the church. You're not striving to be close to anybody in the church. You're disconnected. You're, you're not really about it. You need to understand that that is unchristlike, and that is harmful to your witness, and it's harmful to the witness of the community that you're in because it wasn't designed to work that way. Your church is your family. Your relationships in the church are like family, and that's something that God wants to use to bless the world. Now, this is especially tough for us because, again, we can be casual here. We have people in our country where it's just normal to go to church and listen and go home. That's normal. You can be casual here at the crossings, even though we say every single week, participate, get involved, get connected. You can come on Sunday and go home and not participate. But you need to understand that that casual approach to church life and, and to being a disciple is foreign to Scripture, particularly, particularly 1 Peter, because like I said earlier, participation in the church in 1 Peter was risky. You were taking your life into your hands to go and be part of this church. You could literally die by going and being part of this church. So they couldn't treat it casually. And he's telling these people who are putting their life at risk, here's the characteristics that ought to define your community. Here's what God is going to do with you as a result. Now, if you're investigating a relationship with God this morning, if you're curious about what pursuing him entails, you have got to understand that it is God's will that participation in a local church be central to your life. That's what's presented in the Bible. And if you're investigating a relationship with him, you must understand that pursuing God also involves participation in a local community. That's the way it's set up. This was his design, guys. I'm not making this up. This is all what God reveals to us in his word. This is his design. Secondly, I witness with my Christ-like words. I witness with my Christ-like words. When you become a disciple of Jesus, your use of words changes. You don't use words the same old way you used them before. Jesus has got high expectations for how we use our words. It says in 1 Peter 3, <coughs> don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, and now he's going to quote Psalm 34. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Now he says, a characteristic of the disciples' speech right here is, I don't speak evil and I don't tell lies. I'm not deceitful, I'm not dishonest. I don't make up stuff. I tell the truth. A person's use of words reveals whether they're wise or whether they are foolish. A person's use of words reveals where they are spiritually. The, the reason for that is, well, Proverbs 15, 7, the lips of the wise give good advice. The heart of a fool has none to give. Okay, the reason words are so revealing is because the stuff that comes out of your mouth is tied to what's in your heart. And you can tell very quickly the state of a person's heart 
or what's in a person's heart based upon the kinds of stuff that comes out of their mouth. If you are, have a heart that's full of anger, that's going to come out in the forms of sarcasm more often than not. It's going to come out in biting wit, where you're making fun of people, but you're really sticking it to them. If it's full of hatred, it's going to come out in, in slurs. If you're a racist, it's going to come out in your language. If you have a problem with authority, it's going to come out in your language, right? Uh, all of this junk that we carry around in our heart, if we're guarded because we've been hurt, uh, all of this stuff's going to come out in the kinds of things that you say because your heart determines what you say. And so what you say can tell people around you where you're at. Now, Jesus is the one that makes this connection. It says it right here in Proverbs, the lips of the wise, they're going you know, to have wisdom that's coming out of their mouth, but then a fool, their heart's all messed up, so they're not going to have any. Jesus says it like this in Luke 6, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes. Grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. And an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what's in your heart. Who's going to know firsthand whether you're for real about this Jesus thing or not? Well, it's going to be the people who hear what you say the most. And guys, you can enhance your credibility or you can destroy your credibility by the stuff that comes out of your mouth. Guys come in here and they talk one way at church and then they get home and they talk another way at home. Guys get in here and ladies and they get mad about something and they don't go work it out with the person, but they go home and talk to the person at home and destroy their credibility with the people at home that they're real. Because they're being two different people. Guys, the stuff that comes out of your mouth reveals where you're at. And you can destroy your credibility. Now, just for dads in here, or moms in here, your kids are going to see the way you talk at home. And if they see you coming in here and pretending to be a mature disciple, but then at home the stuff that's coming out of your mouth is horrible or just completely unchristlike, and they don't see any repentance, guys, you are destroying your credibility with your kids. They're going to think you're full of crap. And they're going to think this God thing is a bunch of crap. If you're not careful, there are more preachers who have kids that leave the church than just about anybody, because the kids hear them preach on Sunday and then see something else at home. You destroy your credibility. Guys, a lot of that is what comes out of your mouth. You better be careful about the way you use words. When you become a disciple, what you're saying is, Jesus gets control of my words. And that doesn't mean you're gonna slip up, not going to slip up. You are. None of us are ever going to be perfect in everything we say. Okay? No man has tamed the tongue, is what it says in James 3. It's, 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 a, it's difficult, but you can rein it in. And when you mess up, guess what you can do? That same mouth that you use to mess up, that same mouth can, can ask for forgiveness and articulate, hey, I messed up. 
Let me tell you, especially with children, if you acknowledge your shortcomings before your children, you build credibility and you build realness. But if you try to be religious, like you got it all together and you never admit you did something wrong, or you skirt around it, you just destroy your credibility. That's all a matter of words. Your words matter. Number three, I witness with my Christ-like actions. So I got attitude, I got words, I witness with my Christ-like actions. My relationship with Jesus affects my attitude, my words, and my actions. I must live repentantly. I must live repentantly. Now, that word repentance, it's one of those uh, religious words that we don't use in everyday language, but it literally means a change of mind. Metanoia in Greek, change of mind. It means that you start to see sin the way God sees it. You change your mind about this action or this, this deed or whatever it might be. You start to see that the way God sees it. You look through the lens of what God reveals in the Bible about this, and then you adopt God's viewpoint on that behavior or whatever it is, that attitude. That's what repentance is. When you adopt God's mindset about whatever it is, it leads to a change in action. If God says this is deadly, then I'm going to believe it's deadly, and I'm going to walk away from it. If God says this is good, I'm going to believe this is good, and I'm going to embrace it. That's repentance, right? And repentance is something you do when you first become a Christian, but then it's something that is ongoing for the rest of your life. You live on repentance road. Whenever you get on this relationship with Jesus, you get on repentance road and you live on repentance road for the rest of your life because what you're going to find as you grow spiritually is it's like peeling back the layers on an onion. As soon as you get something handled, God reveals that you got something else you need to work on. And so repentance is an ongoing thing. That's what the process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity looks like. You're dealing with one thing at a time or, uh, and you're just moving on and you're getting better, right? That's what it means to live repentantly. In 1 Peter 3, he says, turn away from evil and do good. This is uh, that same quote from Psalm 34. Turn away from evil and do good. That's a good picture of what repentance is. is it's a turning away. If you mess up, and then you go and pray to God over this thing that you did, and God, I'm sorry for doing that, and then you go out the next day and do the very same thing, that's not repentance. That's, that's an empty request and, and telling God you're sorry without any change. Repentance is change. Repentance is actually changing. If you're doing the same thing and just asking God you're sorry, telling God you're sorry, that's not repentance. That's just telling God you're sorry and continuing to sin, Right? Repentance is where you actually change. Uh, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. That's kind of a scary verse right there. The Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Guys, the choice is left up to us here in this, in this, in this verse. We get to choose whether we're going to be God's enemy or God's friend. And it comes down to whether we're going to live repentantly or not. Verse 13, now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? Peter asks. <coughs> um, my actions change when I come into relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm not the same old man. I'm not the same old woman. 
My actions change when I come into relationship with Jesus Christ. As I seek to honor God with my life, I find out, does this honor God or not? Is this an attitude that is Christ-like or not? A big part of that growth comes in being discipled in the church. You know, when the Great Commission says, Jesus, one of his last words, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, that last part, after you become a Christian, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, there's ongoing connection that's implicit in Jesus' plan for your life. There's ongoing discipling. There, you are, that is an overtime thing that happens. As you get into a relationship with God and you become, become an active member of the church, there are going to be people in the church that are further down the road than you are that are able to advise you and help you take God's word and apply it to your life. That's, that was Jesus' design from the beginning. That was his design. That's why he gave the Great Commission the way he gave it. Right? His plan from the beginning was for us to make disciples and then teach them to obey over time to the point where they can turn around and do that for somebody else. There's ongoing relationship, ongoing connection. That's a big part of living repentantly. If you don't have those people in your life, you are not going to live repentantly because you aren't going to get pushed the way you need to get pushed. You aren't going to get coached the way you need to get coached. Guys, I can't tell you how crazy it is, how oblivious I am to my own garbage. I just don't see it. I think I'm pretty good. I don't know about you guys. I think I'm, I think I'm doing all right. Right? I've always thought that. And you guys that know my story know I have not always been all right. And I still have garbage. It is amazing how blind you will be to your own mess. You will not see it. It's almost like God designed it that way. Other people, your crap is really obvious too. Trust me, you just haven't asked them. Because who wants to hear that, right? You want to know something about the church? Participation in the church is uncomfortable. You want to know what? I'm serious, it is. Because spiritual growth is not always comfortable. Because a big part of spiritual growth is dealing with your shortcomings. And dealing with shortcomings is never comfortable. It never is. If you're looking for comfort, get out of the church. In one sense. There's a whole lot of comfort to be had for life's, for life's issues. And, and like thinking about death and thinking about what's coming. Guys, seriously, there's a lot of comfort. But on the other hand, there's a lot about the church that is super uncomfortable and there's no way around it. Spiritual growth is not always comfortable because you're dealing with stuff that you would rather sweep under a rug and pretend like it's not there. Problem is, that's not how anything ever works. If you grew up like I did, okay, if you don't know me, here we go. I grew up getting molested. I grew up from the age of four getting molested till about the age of eight over the period of a long, long, long period of time. Multiple people that did it. 
There was a pedophile in my neighborhood who abused his kids. His kids were older and stronger. They abused all the other kids. I got it pretty bad when I was a little kid. I grew up in a religious household. My mom and dad didn't know all this stuff happened to me. They just knew my behavior changed. Uh, and so what happened is mom thought, well, I guess I'm just not spanking him enough. Let's correct that. And so I was getting it at home too. Pretty hardcore. I would go to church. You want to know what, what I knew was going to happen every Sunday I went to church? I knew I was going to get my butt tore up where I got home because I was going to do something to make my mom upset. And every single, and I was, part of it was I was, I had all this anger inside, so I would go and like punch kids because I was getting raped and nobody knew it. And I was, there was just all this garbage. So like, life was miserable, right? Life was miserable. I grew up to a teenager, not knowing I was carrying all this darkness around inside of me, but I was. I started self-medicating with drugs when I was 15. By the time I was in college, I was a full-blown addict. But if you'd have talked to me when I was 22, 23, and asked me how I was doing, guess what I would have said? Fine. It wasn't fine. It wasn't fine, right? Now, eventually I got to a point where I wouldn't have said that. When, when I kind of hit rock bottom, <clears throat> but it was extremely difficult for me to admit that I needed help, even though I was so messed up. And luckily, uh, God put some people in my life when circumstances had gotten to the point where I was ready for help. I was ready to try something new. I wanted to follow God and pursue God. I didn't really know if any of this stuff was true. I really wanted it to be because I love the story. But there were intellectual barriers, there were emotional barriers, there was church hurt, there was mistrust. Guys, when people put their hands into my life in a Christ-like way and they started moving things around and they started helping me see things about myself, you want to know what? That was super duper uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's kind of like going to the doctor, you know? If some dude just pulls a knife out and says, hey, can I cut you? You say, no. But if the guy has a surgical mask on and, and the, the doctor creds and he says, hey, you got cancer, we need to cut that out. Still uncomfortable, still hurts, but I'm going to let him cut me. In the Bible, it's wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. That's what Proverbs says. If I had just settled with being comfortable, I would have never come into a relationship with God. If I had just settled with being comfortable, I would have never gotten help with the stuff that I was dealing with. If I had just settled with being comfortable, guys, I might be religious, but I wouldn't be a disciple. And the world does not need another Pharisee people that can quote scripture, but don't live it out. You learn to live it out as you are discipled in community. And even though that is uncomfortable, guys, you need that to live repentantly. Let me say that again. You need people in your life for you to live repentantly. Otherwise, you're just going to be religious. 
You need those connections because you cannot see your nose in front of your face. You cannot see your issues. You don't even know. But other people can. And God has made us to work that way because he's made us to be together with one another. When you're born again, you need to remember you are born to a new life. Your actions are going to be different. In Romans 6, I love this, Paul writes um, just a beautiful, uh, well, let's just read it. So there were people, uh, let, me, let me stage it this way, okay? There were people in, in the first century, there was a, a cult that cropped up that actually taught that it was good to sin. Now these were, uh, this was a Christian cult that taught that it was good to sin because when you sin, you get grace. When you sin, you get forgiveness. Grace and forgiveness are good things. So let's go do all the sinning. Let's go sleep with all the prostitutes. Let's get drunk at all the parties. Let's do all the things. And then let's just go ask God for forgiveness. Because that's how that works, right? We'll just go and sin as much as we can. And then we'll just go ask for forgiveness. This was a cult in the first century. Now that might sound familiar to some practices that are common now. But this was a cult in the first century, right? And this is Paul's response. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means? He says, that is the strongest no that he can use. Should we keep sinning after we become disciples? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Now this is, an understanding of anybody that's a disciple, right? If you have become a Christian, you have said, I am dead to sin. When you decide to give your life to Christ, what you are saying is, I am dead. I made a commitment to follow the Lord after a long time. Uh, I got baptized on Father's Day, um, like 2004. Uh, and, and I did it after wrestling with God for a while. My dad actually is the one that studied the Bible with me. Um, and then he wanted to, you know, let's, let's go get baptized. I'm like, I'm not ready for that yet. I'm not ready for that. Because my baptism, I understood it to mean I was going to die and I was going to be someone new. I was not ready for that at that point. I still had, like, honestly, there was sin that I was engaged in that I wasn't ready to give up. I was still getting high and, and running around. But after about a month of just kind of wrestling I decided, okay, I'm ready to do this. And when I decided to get baptized, uh, we had a, a Sunday service, and I actually went up in front of the church, and I got that microphone, and I said, I, I wanted to do this today because I wanted to do it in front of all you guys because I want you guys to hold me accountable. That's what I said to that congregation. This was a big church in Arkansas. I said, I want you guys to hold me accountable because I'm serious about this. And I got baptized in front of all those people because I was serious. I was serious about living a new life. And that's what you're saying in your baptism is I'm going to live a new life. I'm going to be a different person. Just like Jesus died and was buried. What do you do with somebody that's dead? What do you do with them? You bury them, right? That's what baptism is. It's a burial. Paul explains this here. He says, um, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? New life. Does it say old life? We too may live a new life. It's not about being the same old guy. What you're saying is that old me is dead. That old me, when I was baptized, that old me that was pursuing drugs and alcohol and women and partying and all that stuff, that old me was dead. That old me that was all about myself and all about my comfort and all about what I wanted, that old me was dead. I was saying, I'm going to become a new person. I'm going to be somebody that lets Jesus have control. I'm going to live a new life. And Paul goes on, he says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will also certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Notice at the beginning of five, that word if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Circle the word if. When you see the word if show up in the Bible, pay attention because if implies possibility. If implies choice. If implies action. You get to choose if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. When you become a Christian, you're saying old me is dead. Old me is gone. I'm going to be new me with Jesus in control. That's what you are saying in your conversion experience. That's what it means to be born again. When Jesus says you must be born again, this is what he's talking about. Is There's a death and there's a rebirth. That's what this is all about. He goes on, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin ruled by uh, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin now if there's that word again if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead he can't die again death no longer has mastery over him the death he died he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God in the same way. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to remember again, this is written to a group of people who were being taught that they didn't have to change in order to get right with God. If anybody comes along and says repentance is optional or that God doesn't have any expectations of you, they are, they're, they're not teaching what God's word says. God says, when you become a disciple, you aren't the same old guy or the same old gal. You are a new person. You are new. And it's that commitment to become new if we have been united with him in a death like his. It's that commitment to become new that actually leads to your salvation. It's the commitment you're making in your heart that leads to you, the forgiveness of sin and your salvation. If you are just baptized just to go through the ceremony, you're not being for real. Baptism is about your heart. Salvation in Jesus is about your heart. It's about your allegiance inside, not just about your outward action. It's not just about the ceremony. It's not just about showing up. It is about you becoming a new 
person. That's what it is. It's not the same old Wes. It's not the same old, you're not the same old person. You're a new creation. It's a heart level commitment to become like Jesus Christ and to take the steps and action necessary to, to transform over time. It's not just about a one and done ceremony. If that's what you think it is, you need to look closer at this, okay? It is about lifelong commitment. We're not the same old person. So I am different in my actions. Fourthly, I witness with my Christ-like hope. <coughs> hope is um, this confident expectation that God's going to make things all right. Uh, we talked about this a lot in the lesson on unmistakable confidence. Specifically in Peter, though, um, this is hope in the midst of suffering. Hope in the midst of suffering. This is important to point out. Remember, guys, this was a church <clears throat> that was in the middle of a bunch of persecution. And so Peter is instructing them to hang on to their hope in the midst of really dark times. Now, some of us in here uh, are struggling with our health. We have a number of people that uh, have got severe health issues in our congregation. Some that are going through chemotherapy, some that are just dealing with really dark, like hard stuff in their health. What God's word teaches and what 1 Peter teaches is that you're maintaining your hope in the middle of suffering is a witness to the world. It's a big part of how you influence people. And we could tell you stories uh, about people at the crossings who have been faithful through the midst of suffering, who have won people. You know, Mallory Smith comes to mind. We talk about Mallory a lot. My friend TC's sister, she died of lupus a few years ago. But man, while she was in the hospital and she knew she wasn't going to live much longer, you want to know what she was doing? She was talking to those non-Christian nurses and doctors, witnessing to them in the hospital to the point that it created a little bit of buzz in the department up there. And people got to see not only Mallory's witness personally, they also got to see all the people coming up there and loving on her and singing with her. And there was just something different about that room and that patient because of the love that was present and the purpose that was present. Even as our friend lay dying, she made an impact, right? Um, you have an opportunity when you are faced with great suffering that, that is God-given for you to make a difference. If you've never read John Piper's little essay called Don't Waste Your Cancer, you can read it in, in 20 minutes. I don't agree with everything Mr. Piper uh, believes theologically, but I got to tell you, that is a powerful little document uh, that I have passed along to many people that are suffering. And I would encourage you to look that up. It's free online. Don't Waste Your Cancer by John Piper. Um, it's all about hope in the midst of suffering. 1 Peter 3, verse 14, this is what Peter says. He says, even if you suffer for doing what's right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks about your hope as a believer, Always be ready to explain it. Look here. He's saying if somebody asks why you're hopeful in Jesus in the midst of all this garbage you're facing, you need to be ready to tell them about it. It's an opportunity. You're going to get asked. If there's something that that's, that's that different about you, you're going to get asked. So be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Don't be unkind to non-Christians. 
Don't get on Facebook or social media and badmouth everybody that disagrees with you like some jerk. Be kind. Be nice. Guys, this, I don't know why this is over some folks' head. Just be nice to people. Guys, that is Christ-like. Be kind. Be compassionate. Keep your conscience clear. Then, if people speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Remember, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Peter's like, if you're going to suffer, make sure it's for for doing good. Always just be kind and compassionate to people. You don't got to be mean. It goes a long way. The hope that's mentioned here is not a silent hope. Whenever whenever Peter says to be able to explain and and be ready to answer questions about the hope you have, guys, that is a be ready to take advantage of these God-given opportunities by speaking up. Have you ever heard that that old saying from St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words? Have you ever heard that before? Um, I've heard that a lot. Uh, Matter of fact, one of my high school teachers had a poster of that on their door where I saw it every day when I would come to to school. And that sounds really good. Uh, I've heard a lot of well-meaning people say, you know, when it comes to reaching out or evangelism, I just let my example do the talking. I don't have to speak up. Um, I just want to point out that that's not what Jesus did. Jesus spoke up. Jesus used his words. Jesus was a great example. He was a perfect example, but he also spoke up. He used his words. And that's what Peter is telling you to be prepared to do, is to use your words. This is not a silent hope. Always be prepared to give an answer for the hope you have. Lastly, number five, I witness with my Christ-like life. I witness with my Christ-like life. This is my new life after I become a disciple of Jesus. It says in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. Are we, do we have communion prepared this morning? Okay, uh, we're going to go ahead and take communion this morning. Corey wasn't here, that's why I was asking. Um, we every week want to remember that Jesus suffered for us. We want to remember that because it's something Jesus encouraged us to do. Uh, whenever he got together with his friends before his crucifixion, he uh, took some bread and he broke it and he gave them all a piece and he said, take this in remembrance of me. This is my body that's going to be broken for you. He gave them all a drink of wine. He said, take this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that's going to be spilled for you. This would not have made sense to them, okay? Because this is before he was crucified. Jesus knew what was about to happen. His disciples were oblivious. Before he was crucified, he intentionally had this meal with them in this way with this bread and this juice. Now, it would have made sense after the crucifixion, when, and particularly the resurrection, Jesus came back and he opened their mind to what all this stuff meant. 
He opened their mind to the scripture. He would have explained everything explicitly. He wanted them to remember that he died on the cross for them. And the early church, guys, when the early church started, instead of meeting on Saturdays, the synagogue, they would do Sabbath worship because it was Jewish. And so synagogue was always on Saturday. Well, one of the things that was different about the early church is when they would get together, they would do it on a Sunday because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And the reason they would get together on a Sunday would be to take the Lord's Supper together. And so every week they would get together and they would worship. They would, they would talk about how they were doing. They would apply scripture to their life. But central to all of that was they would take the Lord's Supper together because they thought it was that important to remember we serve a God that made himself a human being and came into the world and died for our sins because that's how committed he is to us. He wanted to show us how to live. He wanted to show us what sacrifice looks like. He wanted to show us how to be others-centered. Guys, God came out of heaven and came into earth for you. He calls you to be about the helping others. He calls you to, to, to do things sometimes that are good for you but uncomfortable. Guys, God modeled it for us. He was a lot more comfortable up in heaven. But he came into the world and he died on the cross to set an example for us. This is what sacrifice looks like. You want to sit and whine because you're uncomfortable? I died on the cross for your sins. I'm not calling you to do anything that I wasn't willing to do for you, right? I died on the cross for your sins. You want to not be about others? I died on the cross for your sins. That's the example I have. I care so much about you that I was willing to give my life for you. And not just quick. I did it where I died slow. I died on the cross for your sins. You think I don't love you? I died on the cross for your sins. You think I don't love you? I want you to look at the cross. I had the power to get down off that cross, but I stayed on that cross because I love you. Every time we take communion, guys, God wants you to examine yourself. Is, are there attitudes? Are there actions? Is there something in my life that needs to go? Is there something I'm holding on to that's keeping me from fellowship with God and others? You need to examine yourself when you take communion. This is a time to repent. This is a time to remember this is how serious God is about his relationship with me? Am I serious about my relationship with him? Let me pray, and then we're going to take communion, and then we'll close up. God, uh, thank you for the cross. God, I pray we can take this in a way that is honorable to you. If there's anything in my life that's keeping me from you or keeping me from being the best version of me that I can be in terms of being like Jesus, I pray you... Help me see that. Help me repent. God, help us to honor you with our lives. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And here's where things get a little crazy. He keeps going. After being made alive... He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Have you ever read this before? Okay.
Um, what this says is that when Jesus died on the cross, his body died, but then his spirit went somewhere else. It went to this place where these other spirits were in prison that died in the flood of Noah. Have you ever wondered, uh, how can God keep all this judgment stuff straight? You ever wondered that? You ever wondered what happens to people in other countries that never hear about Jesus and die? What happens to them? Look, I'm not here to give you a definitive answer. Other than to say God is in control and God knows what he's doing. If you read stuff in the Old Testament and think that's unfair, God knows what he's doing, okay? God's got this. You want to know something God can't do? Make a mistake. Can't do it. Doesn't happen. You want to know what God can't do? Misjudge. Can't do it. His judgment's always right. What this says here is all those people that died in that flood, Jesus actually went and had a conversation with them about their lives. What does that look like? I don't know. Some of that's mysterious. But I'll tell you what I do know. God's got this. God's in control. Peter brings this up because he's going to use the flood of Noah as an example of new life. If you go read the story of Noah in the Old Testament, Genesis, the world had gotten so wicked and so bad that God decided it was time to start over. Everybody just hurt each other all the time. There was only one guy that was righteous, and his name was Noah. And God decided he was going to save Noah and his family in an ark, but he was going to cleanse the rest of the world because it was just evil, and he didn't want evil to just exist. He wanted the world to be right. So he saves Noah in the ark, cleanses the rest of the world. Peter sees this as an example of what God wants to do in your life. He says, uh, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. By the way, if you disagree with my interpretation of that, just go read 1 Peter 4, 6. He says the same thing. Okay, Keep going. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Let me make this clear. In it, in the ark of Noah, only a few people... Eight in all were saved through water. And this water, the flood water of Noah, symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Somebody asked me, uh, does baptism have anything to do with salvation? Do you have to be baptized to be saved? Have you ever heard this question? My question is, why are you asking? Seriously, why do we have to debate this stuff? If the Bible says it, why don't we just do it? Why do we have to draw lines and say, uh, you got to be here or there, we can't get along? Why do we have to do that? Why can't you just take what the Bible says and do what the Bible says? Does baptism have to do any, to, anything with salvation? Baptism that now saves you also. What does that look like? It looks like it has something to do with it, right? But he goes on to clarify it's not about the water. 
It's not about the ceremony. He says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. What saves you? The pledge of a clear conscience toward God. The biblical prescription for making that pledge is baptism. What the Bible teaches is when you are baptized, when you decide you want to get right with God, you want to die to your old way of life and live a new life, you want that old person to die, you get baptized. And what God does when you get baptized is he forgives your sins and he gives you the gift of the Holy Spirit, but it's not about taking a bath, it's about your heart. Let me tell you something, you can get baptized and not be serious about it and it don't count. Seriously, like if you don't repent, if you're not committed to becoming a new person, you just got wet. If there's not a commitment to a whole life change, you just did a religious ceremony that is meaningless. Because if there's not a commitment to being a new person created in the image of Christ, you just got wet. You weren't baptized. Guys, when I was 14, I went to church camp. Some of you have probably heard this story. But I had some guys that studied the Bible with me. I did not know if God was real. I didn't know if I could believe this church stuff. And these two guys just hounded me the whole time I was there. And the last night, and I I was not about it. Like, I was just like, leave me alone. They kept trying to study the Bible with me. And honestly, it was, they were just trying to look good, I think. They wanted to have a convert uh, so that they could pat themselves on the back and say, look. And so they were just hounding me the whole week. And that last day, there was this guy that came to speak named Jeff Walling, which Jeff was a really fun preacher. If you've never heard him, he's a lot of fun to listen to. But he came and spoke to all these teens. And at the end, they had this big, uh, this big uh, invitation thing at the end where if you want to get baptized, come on down. Or if you want to ask for prayer, come on down. Well, those two guys that had hounded me all week, they came up to me after that sermon and were like, are you going to respond? Are you going to respond? And I was like, no. And the one guy's name was Eugene. Eugene said, Wes, I want you to look over there. Do you see Nick? Nick was the other guy that had been hounded me. Nick was sitting in a chair like a row down, and he was just, <laughs> just crying. Eugene said, do you see Nick? Nick is crying. You want to know why Nick's crying? He's crying because you're going to hell. That's what Eugene said to me. And I was thinking to myself, Eugene, leave me alone. Leave me alone. He's like, Wes, please just go down front. Please just go down front. I said, no, I don't want to go down front. Eugene left, and he came back a couple minutes later and said, Wes, Nick is really crying. Can you please just just go ask for prayer? You don't even have to get baptized. Just go down there and ask for prayer, and it'll make Nick feel better. And I was thinking, daggummit. Okay, fine. I'll go ask for prayer. And so I get up, and I walk down front. And I go sit on that stage, and they hand me a little card, and I start to fill it out, and I'm just going to check the ask for prayer box just to get Eugene to leave me alone. And lo and behold, this little girl that I liked came running up and sat down on the stage and wrapped her arms around me and said, oh, you're getting baptized? And I said, I sure am. (laughs) That was church camp, man. And so I went and got baptized just because there was this girl that liked me. But guys, I wasn't serious about it. 
I wasn't serious about a new life. I wasn't serious about really becoming a new creation in Christ. I wasn't serious about spiritual growth. I wasn't serious about putting in the hard work of connection and growth and and all that stuff. I just kind of wanted a benefit in the moment. She never called me back, by the way. Didn't work. It's okay. She was a white girl. Um, when I decided to get serious, guys, when I decided to get serious, when I got baptized at 23, I was serious. And I still messed up. I still struggled with sin, but I was committed. And that's all it takes. Whenever 1 Peter says it, baptism is a pledge of good conscience toward God, that word pledge means appeal. It means, uh, you heard a calling on the name of the Lord? All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved? This is an appeal. This is a calling on the name of the Lord to be saved. That is what your baptism is. It's, it's your appeal of a good conscience. It's also a pledge of allegiance. You know, we pledge allegiance to the flag. Your baptism is your pledge of allegiance to Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is a good understanding of what faith is, allegiance. It's not just mental belief, it's actually, it's loyalty, it's, it's followship, it's discipleship. That's what your baptism is meant to be. And when you make a commitment to have a new life, guys, God will use your new life to bless others. But when you make a commitment to have a new life and you stay the same old person, you will not help anybody. You will just turn people off to Jesus because Jesus doesn't work. And that's what happens when you're religious, but you're not a disciple. Guys, first and foremost, this is about commitment to Jesus Christ. It's not about fitting in. It's not about joining a group. It's about commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord. I hate when I hear people leave the church because they got mad at somebody. What the heck does that have to do with Jesus being your Lord? Is Jesus your Lord? It's not about... That. It's about Jesus first and foremost. God first. Amen? Amen. It starts at your baptism. Baptism is a first step. It's not an end. It's the first step in your journey. The journey of discipleship that you will carry out over the course of a lifetime. You will not be the same old person if you're serious about this. And the church is here to help you. The church is here to guide you. God works through it. He will use you in the context of community, but you've got to be committed and you've got to be connected. That's part of being a disciple. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you get your baptism right, guess what you're going to do? You're going to listen to what Jesus says. You're going to do what Jesus says. If there's stuff in your life that is holding you back, you need to repent. And guys, repentance takes help. If you've got really deep issues, you will not get over it on your own. You weren't designed to. That's why the church is here. Acts 22.16. This is what Ananias said to Paul. He says, now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, wash your sins away, calling on his name. This is how Paul called on the name of the Lord. He gave his life to the Lord in baptism. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet given your life to the Lord, maybe you're still figuring out what this is all about. Maybe you've got questions. 
Can this Bible be trusted? Is God real? Guys, you are in a safe place if you're struggling this morning. If you've got doubts, if you have questions, there's, we, we will never uh, judge you or nobody's going to look down on you for having questions. I'm a guy that didn't believe in God for a long time, and I wanted to. I just couldn't intellectually wrap my mind around this stuff. I thought that the Bible must have been rewritten. I thought a lot of things that I found out the evidence didn't line up with. Guys, one of the cool things about Christianity is there's evidence backing up all the stuff we talk about. There's evidence. If you've got questions, that's okay. Just ask your questions. If you've got doubts, man, that's okay. There are spiritual giants who have doubted, like lots of them. Uh, it's okay. Just talk about it. You're in a safe place. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with an addiction, welcome to the crossings. You're going to fit right in. We've got a bunch of addicts and alcoholics around here. It's one of the reasons we ask people not to bring alcohol around, because we've got a bunch of alcoholics in our midst. Okay? This is a safe place for you. You're with people that understand. If you've been abused, man, welcome to the crossings. You're in a safe place. There's a bunch of people here who know what that's like. It, 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 I don't care what your struggle is. If you're struggling this morning and you haven't made this commitment to follow the Lord because you're struggling, you're with a bunch of people that understand and we want to help you because people have helped us. And we just want to pass that along and we want to teach you to be able to pass that along with others. I want to invite you to connect today. Um, whether that is going out to lunch with somebody, if you're a teen or a college student, go to Cross Chat this week. Uh, guys, we've got all kinds of events coming up all kinds of ways for you to build relationships. A big part of your journey with God involves relationships with other people that are deep, that go beyond just casual like friendships. As you get to know people, they become like family to you as you spend time with them. I want to invite you to connect with a person uh, this morning. I also want to invite you to connect with God. Uh, and if there's anything we can do to help you, there's a cardstock piece of paper in your bulletin. If you can pull that out, it's going to have space for you to respond. I'll let you look it over. We keep those private, but we do want to connect with you this morning. So I invite everybody to pull that communication card out, members and guests alike, and, and fill that out and let God work this morning. I'm going to pray for us. Then we're going to sing a song. During that first song, we're going to pass some baskets and that's going to give you an opportunity to put your card in, the, in there. Uh, and then we'll sing one more song after that and take those up, okay? Um, let me pray for us. God, I thank you for bringing us together today. Uh, I want to pray as we close out that you will help us make the commitment that we need to make. Help us get the help that we need, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.